We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt free of charge. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our life is parched. There is nothing. We have nothing to anticipate, to look forward to. Our souls are dry besides the man, besides the mana. So basically, they're yearning with tremendous nostalgia for what? For the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. And we're looking for beef. We remember so well the fish. This is what they are all crying about. And they continue by the Tripsukim later, Pasik Yud, by Yishma Moshe, Sa'am Boichel, Mishpachos of Ishla Pesach Aholoi, by Yicharaf Hashem Ma'oi, Duba'ene Moshe Ra. Moshe hears the people weeping in their family groups, each one at the entrance of his tent. As Rashi says, families and families are gathering in front of their tents to weep, to complain. That's the first interpretation. And uh, Hashem is very upset, and in the eyes of Moshe, it's pretty bad. And Moshe now goes to Hashem to speak to him. So Moshe tells the Rebbeinu Shalom, 
Why have you done evil to your servant, to himself? In simple English, why do you hate me so much? What do you have against me? Why have I not found favor in your eyes that you place the burden of this entire people upon me? Why this punishment? What did I do that I am carrying such a burden? And he continues... Hanoichi are the unique, splendorous words. Hanoichi are Isis Kalam Azer. Imanoichi Liditiu. Kitoimar Elaisa Eu Bechekecha. Kasher Isa Haoimenes Hayoine Kaladomash Nishbatala Vaisov. Why me? Did I conceive this entire people? Did I give birth to it? I'm their mother. I birthed these people that you say to me, carry them in your bosom, in your bosom as a nurse carries a suckling to the land that you swore to its forefathers. May I in the bosom, where shall I get meat to feed all of these people? They're weeping. Give us meat. We want to eat meat. May I in me many. I alone cannot carry this entire nation. It's too heavy for me. It's too burdensome for me. And then Moshe says something that is quite shocking. And if this is how you want to deal with me, then if you have any liking to me, if you care about me, if I find any favor in your eyes, kill me now. Let me not see my own evil, my own rub, my own downfall. Let me not observe my own tragedy. Huh? You're calling it a mental breakdown. Well, those are those are intense words. But certainly, it would seem that this is what we would define in our lexicon as a complete breakdown. A complete moment of despair where Moshe Rabbeinu is craving for his own death. He says, if this is the situation, kill me. If, I li- if you like me, kill me. If you hate me, keep me alive. The greatest favor you can do for me is get me out of this. I don't want to be here. I don't want to live anymore. Moshe Rabbeinu. I want to understand today what happened to trigger this response. The Jews were crying, we want the beef. We want the steak. We want the lamb chops. We remember the fish. We remember the sushi in Egypt. It was unbelievable. I'm using the word sushi because it was raw fish. They got it straight from the Nile. (laughs) I don't think the slaves had time to cook the fish. Or I should say sashimi, rather. There's probably no rice. Suddenly, they're in love with the garlic, the leeks, the lemon, and of course, the cucumbers. The highlight of all Jewish foods. And they're crying. They're crying. Is this the first time this happened? 
Is this the first time the Jews are complaining? And is this the first time the Jews are complaining about food? They didn't stop complaining about food. They still don't stop complaining about food. <laughs> Some things never change, even when there is food. Certainly when there's no food, you're stranded in a desert. But his response here is absolutely different. I mean, if you go through the history from when Moshe Rabbeinu is introduced into the story of the people in Parshish Shmois, he had to put up not only with complaints, but with the profoundest of lamentations, of rebukes, of hollerings, of insults, of threats, of course of requests, of weeping, of crying, including about food. Already in Egypt, he was denigrated, he was mocked by his friends or by his so-called friends, his enemies. And then after you see his Mitzrayim in the desert, if you just take Parsha's B'Shalach itself, one Parsha, right after they leave Egypt, after they observe the ten plagues, after they observe the greatest of miracles, after the superpower breaks down in front of their eyes and they're set free, in that one Parsha they attack Moshe Rabbeinu four times. And three of them have to do with food. In the beginning of Parshas B'Shalach, they tell Moshe, why did you take us out of Mitzrayim just to kill us in the desert? There's not enough graves in Mitzrayim, we had to die here in the desert. And what does Moshe Rabbeinu tell them? Relax. All be good, guys. The next scene later in B'Shalach, they come to a place, Mara, they can't drink the water. Why? It's bitter. It's bitter. What does Moshe do? Comes to Hashem, he gets the ingredients, the right eight, the right tree to put into the water, it becomes sweet. They move on in the journey and the Jews are screaming, we have nothing to eat. We have nothing to eat. Moshe comes to Hashem and says, Oy ma'atus kaluni, they're going to stone me. But he doesn't lose. He doesn't lose it. doesn't lose his confidence, his responsibility. Comes to Hashem, Hashem says, don't worry. We'll give them mon, we'll give them quail. The food won't stop. They will be satiated. Everyone will have enough. In the same parasha, they come to Rafidim. There's no water again. They're screaming, there's no water again. You have to kill us here. Why should we die from thirst? All in the same parasha, and Moshe once again gives them water. Here, what happened? They asked for meat. They had food. They weren't even stung. They had the mon. They asked for meat. Suddenly they remember the fish and the cucumbers and the leeks and the melon and the garlic. But Moshe's response is completely different. In B'Shalach, they, he thought they'll stone them. He was a leader. Here, something happens. If we would translate it into our language, we would say he surrenders to almost complete despair. There's something that seems like a very serious melancholy or depression to the point that he doesn't want he, he's like my life is so bad it's worthless the only thing that could be better is death and we all understand what a difficult moment that must be to bring Moshe Rabbeinu who's the embodiment of truth he's not the drama queen to tell this to Hashem what happened here that didn't happen before, didn't happen later. Later they're going to complain again. You know how many times they're going to complain? By the miracle in Parsha Shlach, he doesn't ask to die. In Parsha Koirach, his own cousin, the leaders of the Supreme Court, all rebel against him. He doesn't ask to die. There's going to be one story after another story in Parsha's Chukas, 
The Meimiriva, his privilege to go into the land is taken away because of the Meisah with the water. He doesn't ask to die. And then again and again and again. Something here in Baal And at first glance, they were complaining about food. Okay, they wanted meat, shun, many times before, many times after. But now, let's see Hashem's response. Hashem hears these words from Moshe. Says, I'm not their mother, I'm not their father, I didn't conceive them, I can't carry them. May I libasa? Where do I have meat to feed three million, four million people? So what does Hashem say? Hashem responds. Vayoymer Hashem al Right after he says, Kill me. If you like me, destroy me. Next pasuk, right away. Vayoymer Hashem al God tells Moshe. Now I would expect the first thing Hashem should say, Moshe. I'll give them meat. Well, they don't need meat. That's the issue. They're all crying for meat. This is what Moshe screams. But Hashem completely changes the subject. He has a whole different response. I want you to gather to me 70 men from the elders of Israel. You know that they are the elders of the people. You respect them. They're the officers of the people. Take them to the oil moyer, to the mishkan. Let them stand there with you. I will descend and speak with you there. I will increase some of the spirit that is upon you and place it upon them. Some of your ruach will be transferred or will be conferred upon them. And they will carry the burden of the people with you. You will not be alone. You will not carry the burden alone. And then, he goes on to discuss the issue of the meat. I will give them meat and they will eat it and eat it not a day and not two days. A whole month as the Torah continues in Parshas Baloischa. Moshe gathers the 70 people. The spirit of Moshe is conferred upon them. And the Apostlech says, They prophesied. They prophesied. In the camp. And then it says, which according to the literal interpretation is, and they did not do this again. As Rashi says, they prophesied only that day and it was all over. Even though there's another translation of the Targum, but the literal translation is, they prophesied and that was it. That one day. What went on here? What's the story with these 70 elders prophesizing? Moshe Rabbeinu is weeping. He feels he can't do this anymore. Something tells him that his entire life is worthless to the point of asking Khalila for his own death. The first thing Hashem says is, we're going to hire 70 prophets. So at first glance, how do you understand it? How does this constitute a solution? So Rashi tells us clearly, on the Pasuk, Asfali, Pasuk Tazayim, Rashi says, you said I can't carry it alone. 
So that's why I'm telling you, take 70 elders and let them share the leadership with you. You won't be alone. You're not their mother carrying them alone. You have 70 people together with you. It's 71 people. That's the literal interpretation. Hashem says we're going to share the burden we're going to delegate. The Ramban, in his commentary here on Baalaischa, is more specific. And look in the sources. We have the Ramban. Ramban Bamidbar Perik Yudalaf Pasik Yudalaf. Says the Ramban. Loi Sheyazru Askenim Losif Lambosar. The elders are not going to help him give them meat. Moshe says, I don't have meat. Where are they going to get the meat from? If it's going to come through a miracle, then you don't need 70 elders. If it's going to come through a miracle, it can come direct from heaven. If it's coming through natural causes, how are these 70 sages going to help him produce meat for 4 million people? What are they going to become? They're going to create a shlach toys in the desert. What's going to help? So that's not the ish. Another ish. Even if the Jews have many leaders, they continue to complain only to Moshe. Why? He's the man who they hold responsible for all their woes because he decided to take them out of Mitzrayim. Ramban's humorous expression. They have an old, a good old standing minute to come to Moshe. Why did you take us out of Mitzrayim? The fact that he appointed 70 nice people to say Navu is a beautiful thing. But the blame is always on Mami, on Tati. You be a responsibility. What is it going to help? What is it going to help? They want to blame Moshe for taking them out of Egypt. They think it was a curse. It's not the fault of these 70 people. They're not going to come to them. So what do we gain from these 70 people? Meat we're not going to get from them. Complaining to them instead of to Moshe, it's not going to happen. Rabban gives two very interesting insights. Avol Choshev Moshe, Moshe thought, Ki b'yoslem anhigim rabim, they didn't have many leaders, yishachichu chamosam probably, v'yedabru alibam be'ez plunosam. Basically, he wanted to have 70 social workers, 70 therapists, who'll be able to calm everybody down. And that's what the Ramban says. You have 70 people, seven zayin goods, distribute them, everyone will have a group. That's what, that's what he wanted. That's what's going to happen, basically. The complaints will come to Moshe. The meat, they're not going to help him. But maybe they can relax the atmosphere. Seventy people who are leaders, they can serve as, as you know, psychological counselors. The Efsher, or maybe something else Ramban says. Or maybe something else he says. Maybe once the Jews realize that they're serious prophets, they have this direct line with God, maybe those takas start complaining to them. If they need meat, if they need water, if they need this, if they need that, whatever they need, maybe they'll come to them also. Perhaps. We don't know what they're going to do, but Hashem says, Hashem knows, but He says, maybe this is the meaning. That's what these 70 people are for. That's how the Ramban explains the solution. Moshe says, kill me, I can't do this anymore, that's not my responsibility. Hashem says, first of all, we're hiring 70 therapists. <laughs> I don't know for 4 million people what that's going to do, but I guess it's a start. And uh, number two, you know what, instead of all screaming at you, they'll scream at you plus another 70 people. 
And the fascinating thing is, Moshe is completely fine after the story. Hashem says something that causes Moshe not only to regain his composure, but the next scene, Moshe, if I could say this, is back not only to his regular self, but to his unique status of Moshe Rabbeinu, as the Rambam calls him, Mithchar Mine the ultimate human being, Adoyim Hanaviyim, the master of all the prophets, the ultimate leader, the ultimate servant of God. It's all gone. Everything is gone. You see it in all of the next stories in Baalaischa, certainly the, the end of Chumash. What happens right afterwards? If you go back to the sources, we see Chavav. Pasuk Chavav, by Yisharu Shnei Anoshem Emachin Hashem Echad Eldad B'Shem Hasheni Meidot. Two people remain in the camp, Eldad and Meidot, and they also start prophesizing. Pasuk Chavzayim Vayoretz Hanar Vayagad L'Moshe Vayemir Eldad and Meidot Misnabim B'Machane. The young man runs to Moshe, Chazal say it was Gershom, his son, and say, Oy vey, Eldad and Meidot are prophesizing. Vayani Yeshua Benun Mesharis Moshe Mepchura Vayemir Adoni Moshe Kloyet. Yeshua, who's Moshe's Great disciples says, Oi, Elder Amader are prophesizing, we have to cloy him, we have to incarcerate them. We have to arrest them, we have to quarantine them. What does Moshe say? One of the most beautiful expressions, You're jealous for me. You're afraid that I have competition. My wish in life is that the whole nation of God are prophets. I wish Hashem confers His Spirit on everybody. Here Moshe in His full majesty and His full splendor, you're jealous for me that there's two Nevi'im. Don't you realize my wish is, I would love every Jew to experience it. I want every Jew to listen to Hashem's voice directly. We have no glimmer here of a few moments ago, Moshe's terrible crisis. What he's this is the worst job a person can ever have. And then the next scene, Miriam and Aaron, his closest people, speak against him. They slander him about his wife. We don't know exactly, there's different interpretations what they said, we just know that they spoke about their sister-in-law. And you know when families start speaking about their sister-in-law, it's not always so poshant. What they said exactly, Rashi has one interpretation, other Mepharshim have different interpretations, it's a very mysterious possible. But they attack Moshe, and Moshe doesn't scream at them, doesn't insult them, doesn't say, I'm not part of this family anymore, that's it, I'm not going to show up to any simchis in this family, I'll go to my wife. We have the testimony of who Moshe is, the humblest man on the face of the earth. <coughs> and what happens afterwards? Hashem speaks about Moshe Rabbeinu in glowing terms. He's my most loyal man. I speak to him mouth to mouth. It's not through riddles, but clearly. He looks at the image, so to speak, of God. And Miriam becomes a Mitzayras, a leper. And what's Moshe's next move? He goes to Hashem, like the old, good, good old Moshe, and he davens for Miriam. And Miriam is cured after seven days. Miriam is cured after seven days. She's back in the camp. 
and all is well. And then Shlach starts a whole new crisis. And Moshe is there with unwavering leadership, commitment, dedication. Hashem wants to destroy the Jewish people. And Moshe says, no, 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 no. Hashem says, Salach Tikit and then Kairach again. Destruction plagues, and Moshe Rabbeinu stands up and he defends, and Al-Kola Eida, Hanishachet Yechtov, Al-Kola Eida, Tikitzar. Moshe completely is back to his unique status as the unparalleled lover of Israel, leader of Israel, teacher of Israel, greatest prophet, greatest servant of Hashem, and humblest man on earth. Something happens. Yeah. Not a word. It's just they're asking for meat, and just Moshe feels there's no hope. That's what happens, rationally. Yeah. I think it's fair to say we have to understand what's the story here. What's the depth of the story? Let's even analyze for a moment the two answers of the Ramban. They're very interesting answers of the Ramban. But really, they raise new questions. And that is, we're looking for therapists. We're looking for people to carry the burden. We're looking for people they can complain to. Moshe is screaming, I'm all alone. We have already been there in Parshish Yisroi. Moshe's father-in-law came to visit him in Parshish Yisroi, right? According to Rashi, it was a day after Yom Kippur. The year that they left Mitzrayim, a few months later, according to others, Yisra came earlier. There's a shite, he came before Matan Torah, he came after Matan Torah. And Yisra sees what? Moshe is sitting alone and judging everybody, and he uses these words. How can you sit alone? It's not good for you to be alone. You're going to uh, wither away. You're going to rot, you're going to experience decade. A person can't do this. Yisra, what does Yisra tell him to do? Delegate. Appoint leaders, appoint judges, appoint thinkers, appoint ju- sages, and all the quarrels, all the issues, if it's not major, if it's not titanic, let them deal with it. And Moshe follows Yisra's advice. He does exactly what Yisra did. So that was already in place. They weren't Nevi'im, it's true. They weren't prophets. But they were sages. Yisra gave great criteria. Moshe Rabbeinu testifies in Dvarim that he chose unique, unique people. Extraordinary people. So what happened here suddenly? He wasn't alone. He had all these people. This is just a few months later. What happened? <laughs> so you'll say, the Ramban gives a second answer. It's not only we need therapists. We need prophets so they could complain to them. Because it's people who can talk to God. A rabbi won't do the job. A judge won't do the job. A prophet will do the job. But one second. How long did they prophesize for? How long? One day. It was all over. It was all over. They became prophets. And they would be prophets for good. Settle. They said the war for one day. What, we don't even know what they said. For one day, suddenly they were mini Moshe's. And that was all over. But Lo Yosafu, 
By Yisnabu, Eloi Yosafu, it was all over. So what happened there? This people that he appointed in Yisrael remain the leaders. These prophets are prophets for an hour, for a few hours, for a day. Rashi says that day and that's it. Loyosafu, they didn't that they didn't increase, it didn't add, there was no Yosafu. Perhaps they didn't succeed. Although it doesn't say that, perhaps they didn't succeed. Besides two guys, Elvin and Medad, and they now that the problem of Moshe is like, that's wonderful. I wish everybody could be like that. But what about the 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 Nevi'im weren't killed? There's no there's no intimation for that. Right, the people. Right, but it wasn't all Jews. It wasn't all Jews. Obviously, it was a certain group. There were there were a few types of people, but it probably wasn't the prophets. I mean, it doesn't say that anywhere. It doesn't seem that way. The Sefarna writes, Rabbi Yovadia of Sefarna was trying to bring out how the Mefarshim struggle with this. He said the only objective in appointing 70 prophets is, basically, they will repeat what Moshe says, because they'll be prophets like him, and then the Jews will see, you know what? It's not only Moshe, there's another 70 people who agree with him. That's basically the whole point. They keep on blaming Moshe, Moshe, Moshe for all the decisions. There's 70 people who agree with him. And it's also difficult to understand. They're coming and screaming about meat. So the 70 people who agree with him, they're not disagreeing with his laws. They're disagreeing with their situation, with their life. What is accomplished with these 70 people? And the real issue is that everything is solved. And there's no trace or glimmer or residue of this terrible moment of despair that just took over Moshe Rabbeinu. I want to learn with you a Toysvus. It's the second to the last source on the page. Toysvus Shabbos, the Kuf Tezayin Amid Aleph. Fascinating commentary in Toysvus. Everybody knows Parshish Baloyzcha is unique. That there is the Psukim Vayibin Soya Ha'aran Vayoyim Moshe that we say when the Torah is taken out. There's two Psukim in brackets. What do we mean brackets? An upside down Nun which would look like uh, a, a little bit like a C in English, before and an upside noon after. So Vayibin Saya Aaron has one upside noon in the Sefer Torah, and the end, after the next Pasuk, Shuvah Hashem, Rehubay Salfi Yisrael, is another noon. And the question is why? What's the point? So the Gemara says in Masech Shabbos Koftazayin, one opinion says, Lahafsik ben Puranus Lepuranus. We want to interrupt negative energy. Before that is negativity, after that is negativity. Now after that the negativity is clear. The Jews start complaining, this and then they start weeping about the meat that we just discussed. Before that doesn't say anything negative. It just says that it was the twentieth day of year, and the Jews began traveled, and they left the mountain of Hashem Har Sinai, and they traveled a path that takes three days. By Hebrew, Sayar, Russia, where is there anything negative about that? Now let's remember the historical facts. The Jews leave Egypt on Pesach. They come to Har Sinai when? Rishchodesh Sivan. Six weeks later. A week later, they receive the Torah. 49 days, 50 days after the exodus of Egypt. 40 days later, they don't waste time, they create the golden calf. Just a few months after Yitzhak Mitzrayim. The next day, Moshe breaks the Luchas. Yom Kippur, 
Six months after the exodus of Egypt, a few months after Matatari, he comes down with a new luchas, he tells them to build a mishkan. For six months they, they uh, gather the material, well they gather the material in a day or two, they start building, and six months later, the mishkan is erected. It's a great day, it's a great moment, it's described in Parshas Shmini, it's described in Parshas Nosoy, again, a lot of things happen in Rosh Nisim, including the death of the two sons of Aaron, Nadav and Aviyu. This is the first anniversary of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. That year they will make a carbon Pesach in the desert, the only time. There will be the mitzvah of Pesach Sheni for those who are Tomei, when they're making, and the reason they're Tomei, the Gemara in Sukkah brings different opinions, Dav Chafei, Kavov, whether the death of Nadav and Aviyu, or they were carrying Yosef's Aaron, or a Mes Mitzvah. On Rosh Chodesh Iyer, Hashem tells Moshe to count the Jewish people, that's the beginning of Bamidbar. Rosh Chodesh Iyer, this is the first anniversary after Yitzhiyah's Mitzrayim, it's one month after the erection of the Mishkan. Count the Levim, Gershon, Kahas, Merari, we just learned about that in Parshas Nazai. And on the 20th day of Iyer, it says in Baalaischa, they move. In other words, they remained in the same place, for almost a complete year, missing 10 days. From Rosh Chodesh Sivan, till the next year, Chof year, they were in one place, camping by the desert, near Har Sinai, where they actually received the Torah, where they made the golden calf, where they built the Mishkan. It was a place that was filled with a lot of action. And almost a full year later, the 20th of year, suddenly the cloud that was always hovering above them rises, it's time to leave. And then it says, So the Gemara says, you want to interrupt one negative occurrence from another negative occurrence. What was negative? The cloud went up, they left. So Toysvah says, Zok Toysvah, second to the last source, Puranus Rishayna is Vayisu Mehar Hashem. V'amar Ebchanine Shesoru Ma'achri Hashem. Why? It just says they left. Says Toysvah. The Medrash says, Doesn't say they went three days. It says they went on the path of three days. In one day, they did what you usually do in three days. Like a child who leaves school. You ever saw a child leave school? Go back to your childhood years. What do you do? The teacher says, dismiss, the bell rings. Kids don't sit on the desk, let's meditate a little bit, let's hang out in school. So enjoyable, we love this classroom. They're out, they run, they run as fast as possible. If the potential would be there, they would never return. Har Sinai was a school, and it was too long. It went for almost a year, and when the cloud said, dismissed, hoy, did they run, did they run? That's the first Puranius. The second one is, they're screaming about the meat. So in the middle, we have Ayyubim Sayar and two upside-down nuns. Now this is a fascinating illustration of Chazal. Where did they come up with this example? Comparing the Jews to children running away from school. <laughs> That's how they left Harsina. They could have said they didn't, weren't interested in Torah, it was too heavy. Like a child who runs away from school. I'm here, but the moment I don't have to be here, it's all over. And I'm not just leaving, I'm going to leave with passion to demonstrate how much I really 
dislike my school experience. You should just realize, don't think that the problems with schools happen today. People think that all the problems happen today. This is a mice of 3,300 years ago and, ch- and changed. And it was exactly the same problem in a very nice school. Moshe was the Rosh Hashiva. Aaron was the school therapist. You see here they hired 70 therapists to be with them, but everybody was running away. Just a limut We say the good old days. They were old, they weren't always good. Some days were good. Some days were lousy. But the good old days. If it's old, it becomes good simply because it's not here. What's not here becomes in our imagination very good simply because it's not here. And you could talk about it with nostalgia. Like somebody told me once, he says, eh, even today's nostalgia is not what it used to be like. <laughs> so let's try to offer one perspective. And this size, it's based on various sources, including a lovely and very insightful shear, I thought that I heard from the former British chief rabbi, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, and some other sources and insights. But I think in many ways, this Toysavis captures the idea. And I want to learn with you another Gemara. Baba Basra, Ayin Heyamid Aleph, the last source. Skenim Shabaisi Hadoyram, the Gemara says, when Moshe passed on, Yeshua took over, the elders said, Pnei Moshe Kipnei Chama, Face of Moshe is like the sun, the face of Yeshua is like the moon. What a shande, what a disgrace to have Yeshua in lieu of Moshe. It's like you'll take away the sun, you'll give us the moon. What are you comparing? They say in Chelem, it was a debate, what is greater, the sun or the moon? So for seven days and nights they debated, and then the verdict was that the moon is much greater than the sun. Because the sun shines during daytime when you don't need it. <laughs> the moon gives a real contribution. It shines when it's nighttime. <laughs> so this is a chalam amaisa. But the Jews looked at Yeshua, they looked at Moshe, and they're like, Like we say, it's never going to be the same. It's never going to be the same. The moon is a nice creature. We have nothing against the moon. But we know that the moon is the moon and the sun is the sun. The moon is dark matter. It's just a reflection of the sun. And one day we'll even get some astronauts to plant a flag on the moon. The sun, nobody comes close. Moshe is the sun. Yeshua is the moon according to Baba Basra the Fayin Huh? Nostalgic, right. Nostalgic, yeah. In order to appreciate all of this, let's recall the historical context. A year ago, they left Mitzrayim. It was not a small event. It was a unique event in world history, like Moshe is going to say in Parshas Vazchanan, Haniyah Kadavar Hagadul has this ever happened? Hashem should come, L'kachas Goy, to take a nation and liberate it, and reveal himself to the nation, It's a unique historic event which came with lots of drama, lots of fanfare, lots of supernatural events. The Ten Makas, the splitting of the sea, and of course the highlight of all, Matan Torah, the manna, the clouds of glory, the water, the well of Miriam, and all of the other things that happened in Sefer Shmois as the Jews are leaving Egypt. 
They become Hashem's nation. They have a breakdown, a moral breakdown, a spiritual breakdown. They create a golden calf. They're almost destroyed. Moshe again is their ultimate defender. He achieves forgiveness. And ultimately, the relationship is renewed. Second luchas are brought down. And a new reality emerges. They build a Mishkan. For months, they build a Mishkan. And a year later, the Shechina comes into the Mishkan. They have now in their midst a permanent sanctuary where the Divine Presence dwells, communicates to Moshe, Aaron and his children, the Koyanim, serve in the Mishkan. And there is, and there is a certain closure of a renewed relationship. After a full year of experiencing what no people ever experienced before, and we know no people will ever experience after. Matan Torah happened once and will never happen again. Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim happened once. The unique intimacy and relationship they experienced with their, the Creator of the world. Moshe Rabbeinu, as I said, describes in Parshas Vashanam, is absolutely unprecedented. And now, it's after the 20th day of the year, they're about to leave, and the Jewish people are crying. And Moshe Rabbeinu listens to their crying, what do they want? Where's the beef? Oh, the fish, the cucumbers, the lemon, the garlic, the leeks. This said something to Moshe that he never heard before. This touched him in a way that it didn't touch him before. Moshe can deal with challenges. Moshe can deal with sin. Moshe can deal with failures, with mistakes, with errors, even with revolutions, with mutinies, with complaints, of course, with questions, and with challenges of all sort, from within and from without. He has done it successfully. He faced Parai, who was his own stepfather in many ways, or his own Zayd, he grew up in the palace. He faces Amalek, he faces enemies from without, he faces enemies within, unwaveringly, successfully, unapologetically, as the most humble man on earth, without pride, without arrogance, with complete dedication to the cause. In this moment of Parshish Baloyska, Moshe saw something else. Moshe saw a complete failure of his mission, of the Jewish mission, of the Torah's mission. You have seen everything. You have observed everything. You have seen God face to face. You alienated yourself from God. You came back and renewed your relationship with God. God's presence came back into your midst. You have had a year that was saturated with such an intimate relationship with Hashem that it's even inconceivable to the ordinary human being, all the veils that creation are based on, all the concealments were suspended in this relationship that you experienced with Hashem. And after all this, what are you talking about? You're talking about rib steak, you're talking about sashimi, and you're talking about garlic, leeks, cucumbers, and lemons. What happens here is Moshe Rabbeinu asks himself, is my entire work not worthless, not futile? And the point is, the Pasuk says even more, that he sees the whole nation, 
So Rashi gives two interpretations. One is, they were crying, families were crying. And what's the second interpretation? They were crying for the fact that they can't have promiscuous, incestuous relationships, arayas, with their families as a result of Matan Torah. So basically, at this point, they turn to Moshe and they say, this is ridiculous, that we can't have these relationships with siblings, with parents, with relatives, all of the promiscuous relationships, what we call Gilearais. And what Moshe Rabbeinu feels here is, that he achieved nothing. He may have taken them out of Golos Mitzrayim, but he couldn't take Mitzrayim out of them. He may have taken them out of physical subjugation and bondage, but the internal mentality of Golos, the mentality of the slave, of the person who is narrow, who is petty, who is small, who his entire reality revolves around lemons, leeks, garlic, and beef, and a fish that he got free in Egypt. He could not take them out from the mindset of smallness and mediocrity to be able to see their destiny as the Mamleches Koyim and the Goy Kodesh as God's people to change the world. And this broke Moshe in a way that nothing broke him. When he tells Hashem, Ucha Levadi, Lose says, Those words, I cannot myself carry the burden of this whole nation. me many. It's too difficult for me. He doesn't only mean that the burden is hard. I'm one man, I can't deal with four million people. There's something much deeper that he's saying. You know what I feel like? I don't mind being a leader. He's led them through thick and thin. He stood up. He stood up against Hashem Kivayochel to protect them. The Oyvleyaego. What he felt is, I'm the only one who carries the burden of Klal Yisrael, the destiny. Nobody else cares. Nobody else gets it. Nobody else relates to me. I'm lonely. I'm lonely. I'm not just a lonely leader. I'm a lonely individual in the sense. That the entire Jewish people, they're weeping. And what are they weeping about? Machashtikal flesh. The issue wasn't that they wanted meat. You want meat? Come to Hashem, he'll give meat. It happened before. They wanted water, they wanted food, they wanted... He gave them a quail. That wasn't the issue. The Mayayinli Bosser is not, where am I going to get meat? If you want to give them meat, I'll give meat. What broke Moshe Rabbeinu, what devastated Moshe Rabbeinu was, that at this moment he felt he had nobody to speak to. He accomplished nothing. May I leave Basar? This is who I am. This is what I came to the world for. To serve people meat. This is our destiny. This is the zenith of Yiddishkeit. That at the Kiddush we're going to have the best herring. At the Bar Mitzvah, at the Simcha, we're going to have the best meat. This is the whole story that they got. Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, Kriyas Yom, Safar Sinai. God's reality, Atta, Reisel, Adaski, Hashemua, Lekim, Enoi, Mulvagoi. But ultimately, Judaism is reduced to, how is the Kiddush? Was there beef? From who? The dips were good? No dips? I'm not going to that show anymore. Now for somebody who doesn't experience another Judaism, 
That is what it's about. That's how you define a shul, that's how you define a rabbi, you know, that, that's how you define it. For Moshe Rabbeinu, this meant that the entire vision of creation, the entire destiny of the Jewish people, which is radically transcendental, it's revolutionary, it's transformative. It's about tra- transforming the whole world. As we say in Rosh Hashanah, "V'yeda kol pol ki ata pi altoi, v'yovin kol yitzur ki ata yitzarti v'yovin v'yoyim akol Hashem Hashanah v'apay Hashem alakei yisrael malachim alchusim akol mashallah." And not only in a dictatorship fashion, but the point is to reveal in every speck of the universe and in every speck of the soul the koyach apoyel benifol, the essence, the source. The cohesiveness of all reality, the oneness, the Hashem Echad, the Shmoy Echad. You sit fine, you stumbled fine, you have questions, I got it. The darkness gets to you, the inquiries, Moshe doesn't have a problem with that. The Chet Eagle, problem, fear of Eretz Yisrael. But here he felt, what do they say? <laughs> it's like, the people are just completely not there with me. Sometimes you have a leader who works his whole life to make a dent, to make a change. And then looks around himself, looks on the right, looks on the left, and if I can quote the Pasik, There's not one person I was speaking to. He looks at his whole life and he has two words to say about it. Wahevel Vilarik. I never wanted a job. Remember, I was shepherding flock in the desert. For us, it's hard to understand that in today's generation, that a Rebbe doesn't want to be a Rebbe and a leader doesn't want to be a leader. Today, you have a mayor who could spend $100 million in order to be reelected. It used to be that Rebbe's were the happiest if they didn't have the job. It's hard for us to understand. Moshe Rabbeinu didn't want it. It was a punishment for him. He kept on telling Hashem, it's not for me, I don't need this. Not because he didn't appreciate what leadership is. Not only because of the physical issue. The worst is the spiritual issue. I have to deal with the rest of my life with Dasan, with Aviram, with Kairachs. A leader of the status of Moshe doesn't sacrifice his Olam Haza. It's a He sacrifices his Olam Haba. He sacrifices his relationship. He didn't want it. And now suddenly, he did it. Hashem said, you're the man. You're the man. And he looks at the people, and they had everything, they saw everything, and he felt it was all lahevel v'larik. After everything said and done, people don't change. And it's like the Maise, they say it about the Rambam, some people say it about somebody else. The, the message is what matters. You know the story that the, one of the early Yisrael was arguing with some non-Jewish philosophers if you could change the nature of animals. And they took a cat, and they trained the cat for a long time to the point that the cat will carry on its back a tray and become a waiter at a fancy gourmet feast. And as the cat came out with a tray on its back, they, they felt that they triumphed and they showed this Jew, ah, look, look at this cat. 
But he had a little box, he took it out of the bag, and he opened the box. And of course, a little mouse came out of the box. And the moment the cat observed the mouse, flipped over the tray, and there went all the beautiful food. And the cat became a good old cat, and just ran after the mouse. And this is really a question about people. Charles Darwin, in his Origin of Species, where he basically postulates that we have evolved from primates, concludes and he says one of the, probably, I think he, almost verbatim, I don't remember exactly, but very close to what he says, he says, one of the most important ramifications of my study of evolution is that there's fundamentally no difference between the animal and the human being. Because if our Elta, Elta, Elta Zayda was an ape, and the Elta, Elta, Elta Bubba was a monkey, and their Elta, Elta Bubba was another primate, all the way back to uh, the first gases and bacteria, so there's no fundamental difference. It may have taken another few million years, or another few hundred million years, until the Homo sapiens had evolved, but essentially there's no difference. And it's that moment where you look, that after all the changes upon changes, we remain ultimately the same. The slave remains the slave, the petty person remains the petty person. They can experience God, they can experience truth, they can experience transcendence, they can experience cosmic oneness, they can experience enlightenment and education in the profoundest way to the core of their being, but then at some point they turn to Moshe Rabbeinu and they just say, where's the steak? Where's the ketchup? Where's the barbecue sauce? Why is there no sauerkraut? What happened to the mustard? Life is not worth living. Life is really not worth living. And Moshe doesn't have what to say. Moshe looks at them, and it's like, I don't have time to you. He comes to Hashem and he says, kill me. But this is the matzah. This is the situation. And this is a crisis that he never faced before. It's a different type of crisis. Moshe was not the only great man who wished to die. If you read Tanakh, which is a good thing for Jews to do once in a while, there were other great people who wished to die. Remember who? Yom Kippur, we read about one of them. Yoina. Yoina tells Hashem after he forgives Nineveh, I don't want to live, I want to die. Eliyahu Anavi, after he confronts the 400 Nevi'im by Mount Carmel, and Izevil puts out a death warrant for him. Eliyahu Anavi comes to Hashem and says, Kill me, my life is worthless. The most dramatic is Yirmiya Hanavi. Yirmiya Hanavi not only craves to die, but in many ways it's similar to what we see here in Parshas Baloischa. And I want to read a few psukim from Yirmiya Hanavi. These are shaking psukim. Yirmiya Perikhaf, it's the third to the last source. The background is a man named Pashkar, the son of Imer, who is the Kayan at the time in charge of the Beis HaMikdash, is fed up with Yirmiya, rebuking, warning, encouraging, trying to make things change. He takes Yirmiya and has the great habit of doing with prophets and he throws him into a dungeon. Yirmiya speaks. Let's see what Yirmiya says. Yirmiya Perikhav Pasuk Zayin. Pitisan, it's very powerful, he speaks to God. Pitisani Hashem va'epas. You enticed me, O Lord, and I was enticed. You lured me into the trap of leadership. And you know what? 
like Mefata, right? Pitin. And I was trapped. I, I got, I got enticed. Chazaktami vatucha. You overcame me and you prevailed. But what happened? I have become laughing stock all day. Everyone mocks me. Everyone thinks ich bin the Meshugana. I'm the Meshugana. When I speak against theft, adultery, lies, dishonesty, a lack of divine awareness, I'm the nutjob. And he says, he says weiter. Kimide adaber ezak chamas v'shoi ezak. Whenever I speak, I cry out. I call out violence, spoil for the word of Hashem has been scorn and mockery for me all day long. Pasuk Yudalid, he discusses his wish. Cursed is the day in which I was born. The day in which my mother gave birth to me shall never be blessed. It should be a day commemorated as an eternal curse day because I came into the world. Pasuk Tesvav. And this is, this is remarkable. I mean, remarkable and tragic. Arur ha'ish asher biseris avi lemer. Yulad lecha bein zachar sameach simchahu. Cursed is the man who brought the news to my father, telling him, a male child has been born to you, making my father glad and happy. Cursed is that man who brought my father the news. That man shall be like the cities that Hashem overturned and he did not repent. And let him hear an outcry in the morning and a scream at noontime. What does Yermia want from this guy? He came to his father and said, Mazel tov, when is the Shalom Zachar? Can I be the Samrik? What does Yermia So he says, look at this. You know what I have tightness to him? He was there by my birth. He saw it. Asheloi moisesani meirechem. He didn't put me to death from the womb. That's my tightness to him. When I came out of the womb, he should have killed me. Instead of killing me, he went to my father and said, Wow, it's great news, Mazel Tov! I wish my mother could have been my grave. In other words, to die in her womb. I wish her womb would have become a perpetual, eternal pregnancy for me. I would have remained eternally pregnant, which means, in other words, I would have died in the womb. Stillborn. And he continues and concludes the Perik. Why did I come forth out of the womb to see one thing? Grief and agony and have all my days end with shame. This is Yirmiya Hanavi's, one of the greatest prophets one of the greatest men of God, the one who gave us the book of Yirmiyahu, the book of Eicha, Yirmiyahu Hanavi, these are his thoughts, these are his feelings. How does Hashem respond to this? Giving the Jews meat will not solve this issue. 
Can they get inflation? It's not about the meat. It's about the person. Not about the hunger. Moshe doesn't care if people are hungry. He wants Jews to eat and eat and eat and be satiated. He has no issue with that. It's not the meat. It's the people. It's the mindset. It's the pettiness. How does Hashem respond to this? And here comes a unique moment in the life of Moshe. A unique moment. Moshe experiences something that very, very few people in history experience. For one moment, you know what Hashem does? Hashem shows Moshe Rabbeinu the influence that he had on 70 people. For one moment, not for long, Moshe Rabbeinu is going to observe what impact he had on 70 of the greatest Jews whom he knew. For one moment he saw 70 people prophesizing from his ruach, from his spirit, from his energy, something of his personality, of his ruchnius, of his nevuah, of his godliness, of his holiness, of his goodness. He saw mirrored back to him. He saw a reflection. Seventy people became his mirrors. When he looked at them, when he listened to them, he saw a reflection of himself. They were prophesizing God's words from his nevuah, from his ruach. For one moment, he received feedback of all of his work, of all of his labor, of all of his teachings. He saw what his inspiration does to people. He saw that he created prophets. He created Nevi'im. He created people who hear the voice of God, who experience the message of God, who see the world from different lenses. They look at humanity from a different perspective. They look at earth and heaven in a different way. What is a Navi? Navi, we call Navi, it's a delusional Meshuggah, right? But what's really the Navi? The Navi is the person who doesn't get distracted by the static of rib steak and sushi, and he gets to hear the perspective of God in the universe. That's what a Navi is. And for a moment, Moshe Rabbeinu sees what his inspiration did to these people. They weren't a vehement out of nothing. It wasn't some miracle. These were people who were Talmudim of Moshe Rabbeinu. And Hashem allowed Moshe to see in a very revealed and conspicuous way the influence he had on them. Now, usually that wouldn't happen. Why? Because Moshe is the sun. And what happens when the sun shines? I'll tell you a personal word I heard from an interesting character. At some point a few years ago, somebody warned me that if I don't go for voice lessons, at some point I'm going to have to stop speaking. So I went for voice lessons. I went to a fellow in Borough Park who came highly recommended. They said he's mamish, a great professional in voice lessons. Quite a few years ago, his name is Chazen Einhorn. Du lachst. Anyway, I spent a half an hour with Chazen Einhorn. He wanted I should take the session. And every day or a few times a week, or whatever, once or a few times during the week, I should play, we still use the tapes then, Zichronim Levracha, Aleyem HaShalom, 
cassettes, yeah, and uh, and you tape it, then I should listen to it and do the practices, the exercises over again, so that the next week when I come, I should be after all of the exercises, you know, fine. And he said, if you want to learn how to speak, you have to learn from a dog, how a dog barks, that's basically how you should, uh, how you should speak, in terms of uh, using your, uh, your, uh, the right, the right sources, the Hevel Halev, the chambers of the heart, rather than the vocal cords themselves. Shai, of course, like a good Jew, thinks he's busy. I didn't do the practices during the week. He came, I came back the next week. He says, Nope, did you practice? I said, No. I said, No. So he gave me a piece of his mind. Vizela Shaina HaKadosh. He says, you know what your problem is? Your problem is you think you're a star. And therefore, you don't have to practice. And you don't have to follow orders. And you don't have to be obedient. And you're not going to be a student. But let me tell you something. The greatest singers in the Jewish world all come to me as students. And they all obey me. But your problem is you think you're a star. But let me tell you one thing about this office. Here, the sun shines. And when the sun shines, there's no stars. So me being the person I am, maybe somebody else would have got insulted. I thought that's great for my next rush. <laughs> so it worked. It was fine. At Rangishri and it went for more, but whatever. But the word is a good word. When the sun shines, there's no stars. You expect that the 70 stars should show up and tell Moshe Rabbeinu, by the way, you're having an impact on us. In the presence of the sun, people melt. People are silent. People are quiet. They didn't have the audacity. They didn't have the chutzpah. They didn't have the guts to show up before Moshe and say, by the way, Moshe, you're doing good work. You changed my life. You impacted us. Nor did they perhaps know how important, how relevant it is to Moshe Rabbeinu. But what Hashem does is, He tells Moshe these words. He says, For one moment I'm going to let them grow and show you the spirit in you, the way it's reflected in them, and you'll see how you change people's lives. You'll see what type of students you have, and you'll realize that even after you may leave this world, although he didn't express himself that way, your light will continue for eternity. You have planted seeds and they will continue to grow. He enabled Moshe to see that someone is going to care for those things that he cared about. And that's why he says, It's not that you're going to have help. You'll have 70 people that you can scream at them. Or you'll have 70 therapists only. He already had help from Parshish Yisra. You'll be able to see that you're not alone in the world. That your voice was not lehevel melarik. It was absorbed by somebody. It's not that your words just bounce back to you. And no one is really listening. And ultimately in a moment of truth, you have made absolutely no difference. You're going to see how you change somebody. You'll see the impact you made and you'll realize that that impact is eternal you'll see that they also care. But no su itcha. You're not levadecha. So Hashem gave him the greatest gift 
which other people have not been given. He let Moshe Rabbeinu see the influence he had on others. He takes the spirit that's on Moshe and puts it on them, so he could see the difference he made in one group, 70 elders. And you know what happens when they prophesize? Moshe Rabbeinu does not need anything more. He doesn't need their help. He doesn't need them to continue to prophesize. He needed a transparent glimpse of how his spirit has communicated itself to them. And then he knew that he made a difference. Little could he know this on his own. Could he know on his own when the only thing he encountered from the Jews was basically complaints, rebellions, challenges, hollering and screaming? Could he know that he had such a decisive influence on people that 3,300 years later we're still studying and living by the words that he transmitted? Could he have known that? Could he have known that he helped forge an identity that would prove more tenacious than any other in the history of mankind? Could he have known that from hindsight it would be shown that he was the greatest leader that ever lived? He couldn't have known these things. All he heard from them is we should have stayed in Mitzrayim and died and died and died and you're guilty for doing it. What he needed to know is that 70 people internalized his spirit. And he knew that his life was not in vain. He had disciples. His vision was not his alone. He transmitted it to others. Others too will continue his work after his lifetime. That was enough for him. Now Moshe could face any challenge with serenity, with confidence, with optimism. Elder Amedad, Miriam and Aaron, the Miraglim, Koirach, and everything that will come after. Moshe Rabbeinu was shown a glimpse, that unique glimpse, that he was not a lone lion, crying in the desert, speaking about truths that ultimately nobody really could relate to. Nobody can internalize. Ultimately, at the end of the day, people were just the cats that would chase after mice, and when they had a moment of gossip and of slander, they would go right to it. And I think, in of course a different level, many of us can relate, can relate to this sensation. Because sometimes, when you look around you, you can observe, of course present company excluded, but you can observe such pettiness coming from people who you would expect greatness from. You know, sometimes you invest in people you invest in a community, you invest in a relationship, you invest in an institution, and 20, 30 years later, you can get stabbed behind your back in reality or in your perception. And you're like, ultimately, the corruption is everywhere the same. The negativity is everywhere the same. People are the same self-centered, narcissistic beasts who care only about themselves. Some people use God as a crutch. And some people don't use God, they just say they're atheists. But even the people who use God are just using God to be able to promote their goals and their agendas. They may have different language, they may have different words, they may have different mamori chazal. But ultimately, when push comes to shove, when they're challenged at their core, you don't change anything, nothing changes. 
And that can create a very serious breakdown for people who care. Which is why so many people stop caring, they become cynical. How many people do we speak to openly? They may stick around, but they're just cynical at their core. They learn to trust nobody and nothing, because at the end, they don't observe sincerity in a very deep way. And they feel that Torah Yiddishkeit doesn't really change people. It puts people in structures, and some people are doing good things in those structures, but ultimately nothing is changed. And when the mouse comes out, the proper moment, the cat will go chasing after the mouse. The question is, how expensive is the mouse? But that question is only how much, not if. It's a question of when. What Moshe Rabbeinu has to see at this moment is, it's not true. Not everybody only thinks about steak. Look at 70 of your Talmidim, who will forever be different. Listen to their words and see they're prophesizing, they're speaking God's words, but it's all yours. It's from your spirit. It's not an issue of ego. The same Torah says he's the humblest man. It's an issue. If God put me in a position, wasting my whole life, accomplishing nothing, or actually we can change the world together. And for Moshe, who cares about the cause, not about his ego, he cares about the cause. When he saw that the cause has no future, it broke him. When he saw that the cause has a future, there's 70 people who will never be the same. And those 70 people will create more people. So for Moshe Rabbeinu, that was enough. And the crisis was over. It was over. And you know, I think we could learn something very profound. Most of us have an ancient Jewish custom. We don't give feedback. We don't, I mean, criticism, yeah. But we often don't give positive feedback or completely positive feedback. I'll ask you all a question. Think for a moment about three people who influenced you most in your life positively. Not negatively, positively. Three people who made a serious positive impact on your life. Maybe when you were four, maybe when you were 14, maybe when you were 24, maybe when you were 44. But three people who not only, you know, uh, are fine people, but people who made a change in your life. Maybe something they said, maybe something they did, maybe something you read, maybe something you heard, but they absolutely made a change or maybe even transformed your life. And now I want to ask you a second question. Do these people know about it? Do these three people know how they impacted your life? What do you think the answer is for most people? These people don't know. In most cases, these people don't know. Did you ever tell it to them? If they changed your life, why did you never tell it to them? The answer is, when the sun shines, there's no stars. First of all, it's a sense of, you know, who am I? I'm going to come and tell you, by the way, you changed my life. Am I that important that you'll even care if you changed my life? (laughs) Big deal. And second of all, probably maybe hears it from other people. And second of all, it's vulnerable. To say you changed my life is vulnerable. It means I owe you something forever. We don't like to be vulnerable. We like to be macho. To tell somebody, to look them in the eyes, you know, thank you. Yehuda means thank you, right? It's the same word like confession. Hoida and toida is the same word. Thank you. What's the, what's the connection? Confessing means I lied to you. I'm sorry. I stole. I'm sorry. I gossiped about you. I'm sorry. I did something wrong to you. I apologize. I mistreated you. Thank you. 
Thank you, Adai. It's really the same thing. A real thank you is as vulnerable as a confession. Because a real thank you, I don't mean past the tissues, thank you. Past the chumers, thank you. I mean to be able to look somebody in their eyes and say thank you. Thank you. In that profound way, it's a very vulnerable experience. It's mamash like haidah. That's another reason we may not do it. Maybe there's other reasons. But all the reasons are wrong. We should communicate to people what they did for us. Somebody sent me a poem that a Bar Mitzvah boy once read about his parents at the Bar Mitzvah. And he titled it, When You Thought I Wasn't Looking. So he said like this, When you thought I wasn't looking, you hung my first painting on the refrigerator. It was messy, it was ridiculous, I'm adding that. But you hung it on the refrigerator, and I wanted to paint another one. When you thought I wasn't looking, you fed a homeless human being, and I thought it was good to be kind to strangers. When you thought I wasn't looking, you baked a birthday cake just for me, and I took notice that you cared for me in little things. When you thought I wasn't looking, you said a prayer, and I believe there was a God that I can always talk to. When you thought I wasn't looking, you kissed me goodnight, and I felt love. When you thought I wasn't looking, I saw tears come from your eyes, and I learned that sometimes things hurt, but that it's all right to cry. When you thought I wasn't looking, you smiled, and it made me want to look that pretty too. When you thought I wasn't looking, you cared, and I wanted to be everything I could be. When you thought I wasn't looking, I looked. And I wanted to say thank you for all those things you did when you thought I wasn't looking. Even the greatest leaders, even Moshe Rabbeinu, have to be able to hear that their work, that their sacrifice is not in vain. It's not futile. It's not meaningless. It's not worthless. Even they deserve to hear that they're accomplishing something, that days and nights of giving, of sharing, of teaching, of communicating the Word of God is going somewhere. It's making a dent in somebody's life. They shouldn't say, cursed is the day that I left my mother's womb. I should have remained eternally pregnant because my life is just one wasted, one wasted potential. You know, I want to conclude with a story. Mamesh Amaisa, the Yid himself, told a story. It's a very it's a very special story. His name is Yehuda. Today he's a real estate, very successful real estate dealer in Israel. He served in the Yom Kippur War. And during the time of the Yom Kippur War, I think right after the war, a few months after the war, he and his platoon patrolling the Golan Heights that Israel took from Syria in 1967 war, and in the Golan till today, there were many, uh, what are they called, uh, mine, huh? field mines, and uh, he stepped on one of them, and uh, in the explosion, he was wounded badly, with a helicopter, they took him to the hospital, and to save his life, they amputated both of his legs. For a few months, he was in a, in a coma, he wasn't conscious, and when he woke up one morning, he lifted up the blanket and he saw that he's missing two legs and he screamed in horror and the nurse came running in 
And he's like, what happened to my legs? And she's like, wow. Thank God, you woke up. You're speaking, you're up. We didn't know that's going to happen. And this Jew described the aftermath of what happened to him. He basically sunk into a terrible, terrible depression. Because he felt that, you know, his life, his functional life came to an end. And he said his mother, he went back home ultimately. His mother would cry all day. And his father was quiet. His father was one of those Jews who didn't believe in talking. I'm sure some of you know that style. Especially when it comes to painful emotional things. He said, I don't know what was worse, my father's silence or my mother's tears. He says his friends would come over. They didn't have what to say. Nobody looked them in the eyes. They would sit. And the first opportunity they could leave, they right away jumped on the opportunity. You know, somebody else came, if the telephone rang, if the nurse came, if he had to go to therapy. Like, he felt like, you know, they, they, they couldn't be there for him in any way. He said Israel, of course. You know, they paid for the expenses, a veteran and, and a wounded veteran. Uh, what do they call them? Nechet Sahal. the invalids of the IDF of Svag and Israel. And he said, he told the story publicly that he felt so bitter. He was bitter, he was angry at the entire country. And it was an emotional response. He felt that he gave everything. He gave his life, he gave his body, he gave his neshama for Eretz Yisrael, for Israel, for the Jewish people. And they couldn't give anything back to him in return. A few years pass. It's the summer of 1976. Chodesh Av, I think it was Chav Gimel Av around, August, August 70th, Tavshim Lamed 76, around 150, a few hundred, 150, I think maybe a little more, of invalids of Tzahal came for a, uh, a tour to the U.S., you know, to see interesting places that were sponsored by, the, by, by Israel or by some donors to Israel. They came and they went. They saw different people, different experiences, and it was, today it's done pretty often, common then it was a, a rare, unique thing, you know, the world wasn't where it is today. And, uh, and it was a very special experience for them to get away, you know, to be nurtured, to see interesting sites, to do some interesting things, and so forth. One of the places they came to visit was 770 Eastern Parkway, in the Crown Heights section of Brooklyn, to see the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And for those who remember, it was a very unique, there's also photos of it, it was a very unique moment. They emptied out the whole downstairs of the shul of 770, and it got filled up with wheelchairs. All of them were in wheelchairs. It got filled up with wheelchairs. And the rabbi said he wants to come down and speak to them. And he came down, and it was him with all of these, uh, these soldiers of, of, of Israel. And uh, the rabbi spoke, not in Yiddish, that wouldn't do much for them. He started his speech in Hebrew, and he said, uh, he said something, I apologize that I'm going to speak Bahavara Ashkenazis. I'm going to speak with an Ashkenazic pronunciation, because that's what I'm accustomed to. I'm not accustomed to the Sephardic uh, uh, way of communication, so forgive me, but I hope you'll be able to understand my words. And he spoke, I don't know, maybe for 20 minutes, 15, 20 minutes. A very, very moving, moving talk. One of the things he said then, was that uh, as a Jew we have custom that we mix into other people's businesses, even when we're not asked. So he said, based on this, you know, time-honored Jewish custom, I'm going to mix into your business and suggest that you change the name. I don't think the name Nechei Tzahal suits you, because Nechei means the invalids of Tzahal. And really your name should be changed to Mitsuyanei Tzahal, which means the exceptional of Tzahal. And I'm not saying this 
as a feel-good, you know. You're not an invalid. Of course, they're invalids. He said, I, I, I mean it very sincere. Why? So he said, everyone has a shlichus in the world. Everyone has a mission in the world. When Hashem takes away from somebody physical resources, they still have a purpose in this world. It means that He compensates them with unique resources spiritually, psychologically, emotionally, and morally to be able to fulfill their mission in life. And in that sense, there's something unique in you that nobody has. And by a Jew, there's hakboras hatsura al hachoymer, the neshama and the guf. The guf is a vehicle of the soul. So what counts mostly is your internal spirit. And in that sense, there's something absolutely exceptional about you. And that's why I think the name is Mutsiyan Eitzal. And he spoke of different items, different subjects. As he finished, he said, I want to ask permission if I can have the honor to approach each of you and give you a dollar to give it tzedakah as a shlichus mitzvah when you come to Eretz Yisrael. And of course, they were very happy. Now, usually the Rebbe would sit and people would come to the Rebbe. Here, that wasn't possible. So it was very moving. The Rebbe walked around the whole shul and he went to each wheelchair and he shook everybody's hand and he gave them each a dollar, a few dollars for tzedakah. And it was very noticeable that he said something to each one of them. Later, later, I heard years later that the Rebbe said something else to each soldier. This man who lost his legs in the Golan Heights was among those people. And he said when it came to him, the Rebbe shook his hand. And he took both of his, his, his hands, the Rebbe's hands, and put this man's hand in his hands, and he caressed him very, very warmly. And then he looked this man straight into his eyes. He said, he looked straight into the eyes. He said, I have seen generals, I have seen commanders, I have seen great people. But there was something I saw at that moment, a sense of majesty, of, of royalty, of aristocracy. And his blue eyes were so loving and full of compassion. And he looked me straight in the eyes, and very slowly, he said... Thank you. Thank you. Basically thanking him for what he has done. And he said, that was all I was waiting for. I was waiting for somebody to look into my eyes and just thank me. Nobody could give me back my legs. And nobody can restore my body to what it was. But just really, with their whole neshama, just say thank you for what you did for the Jewish people, for what you did for the Jewish homeland, for what you did for, for millions of Jews to protect them from enemies that want to destroy them every day. He said, I want you to know I went home and it gave me a sense of dignity and of optimism and of empowerment. I got out of my depression, I got out of my bed, and I decided I need a new job. <laughs> I can't be a soldier exactly. He went into real estate. Real estate, you could sit all day and sell buildings. It's good to run around sometimes, but he couldn't run around. And he became extremely successful financially. He's still very, very, very successful financially. And a man of, of great spirits. And he finished his speech. He said, some days I wake up in the morning, I pick up the blanket, and when I see what I look like, I want to sink right into depression. And then I recall... That man's thank you. A Rebbe's thank you. And that thank you gives me fuel. It gives me the engine to get out of bed and to continue my day. 
And when I heard the story, when he shared the story, I thought to myself, you know, how true it is in so many people's lives. You say something to somebody, you do something for somebody, you never get feedback. But years, years later, you may hear or you may never hear, that it made a serious change in their life. This soldier never got feedback. Never got that type of feedback. The Rebbe looked at him when he went to all the soldiers and he understood this is what he needs. This is what he deserves. Not only what he needs, it's what he deserves. Moshe Rabbeinu got that from Hashem at that moment. We can give that feedback to people who changed us. Just like when we would hear that feedback from people that we changed, it sometimes transforms everything. Because you could live your whole life, plant seeds, and change people's lives, and you never realize it. But even when you don't realize it, you have to realize it's the truth. This is what we learned from the story. It's the truth even if you don't know it. And that is no word is in vain. No gesture is in vain. No tear is in vain. No smile is in vain. No sacrifices in vain. It plants seeds. It creates differences. And it makes dents in people who are sometimes selfish, petty, narrow-minded, narcissistic, foolish, dumb, oblivious, and clueless. You'll continue any other adjectives that you would like to share about humanity. But still have a soul. And when we become conduits for the Word of God, we touch them in that place, in ways that we know, and usually much more in ways that we don't know. Thank you very much. Have a wonderful week. Oh, you're not a